The scripture reading today is from Psalm 125, a psalm of ascent. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good and to those who are upright in their hearts. But to those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead away with evildoers. Peace be upon Israel. There's a story uh, going around the internet of a mom who was, had the kids put down to bed and she is uh, crawling into her own bed and suddenly she hears the scream of her seven-year-old son. And so she gets up, she runs to the room only to find her two-year-old daughter has her hands in the son's hair and, he's, and, and, uh, and she's pulling out his hair. And so the mom, like a wise mom, walks over and gently uh, removes her hands from his hair and then turns to her son and says, she didn't mean it. She doesn't know what she's doing. And then he turns and nods to her and goes, okay. She puts them both back to bed and she walks uh, back to her bedroom. And then about 30 seconds later, she hears her two-year-old daughter screaming at the top of her lungs. And she comes running back. And the next thing she finds is her seven-year-old son has his hands in her daughter's hair. And she goes, what are you doing? And he goes, now she knows. <laughs> we, we learn pretty early in life that two wrongs don't make a right. And then we learn a little bit later in life that two wrongs make a mess. And so uh, we see this in our world. We see, uh, even though we learned it in kindergarten, we see wars of retaliation. We see uh, lawsuits and counter lawsuits and we see uh, gang fights and we see uh, marital spats and just a funny one that's become a little bit of a cultural thing in the U.S. You know, the Hatfields and McCoys. You can go on for a century of personal fighting. But what we learn really early in life and then continue to learn it is this isn't helpful. It's not profitable. So the question we're going to be answering this morning is, uh, how do the people of God live in the midst of wrong? Let me say that again. When wrong is happening in your personal life, how do the people of God walk with God in the midst of it? And just a couple of notes about uh, Psalm 125. We talked about it last week, but Psalm 125, it's a song and it's a communal song. It's a song that uh, Israel would have sang as they arrived in Jerusalem gathered for uh, festal worship. So it's a song that belongs to the whole people of God, but it's also a song that, believes to, that belongs to the individuals of God. So again, the question we're going to be answering is, is how do the people of God live in the midst of wrong? And the first thing I want to demonstrate to you is just from this text, the reality of wrong. So if you uh, just look real closely at verse one, it, it starts out with this amazing promise. It says, those who trust in Yahweh are like Mount Zion, which can not be shaken, but remains forever. At the beginning of the song, if you're singing it, you're like fired up. You're, you're, I, that's a great promise about those who trust in Yahweh. 
And then Mount Zion, just for a backstory, Mount Zion uh, in the Old Testament is really just a, another way of saying Jerusalem once the temple had been built on top of it. And right there is where the psalm gets really, really, really interesting. See, uh, Psalm 125 was added to the Psalter. It was added to the book of Psalms after the exile. So those of you who know a little bit of Old Testament history, in uh, around 600 BC, what happened is uh, the kingdom of Babylon marched over to Jerusalem three times over the course of about a decade. They attacked Jerusalem, conquered it, On the third time, what they did is they tore the temple down to the ground, drugged the king out in the street, slaughtered his sons in front of him, plucked out his eyes, and then sent him and all the people back to Babylon blind. About two generations later, 70 years later, the people of Israel are released from Babylon and they make their way back to Jerusalem. They start the rebuilding of the city and they start the rebuilding of the temple And it's in that immediate context that Psalm 125 is added to the Psalter. So it leaves you with this question, how could you originate a song about the promise of not being shaken? The promise that it'll remain forever right when your memory's been seared by the fact that the city was just torn down to the ground. The temple was just burnt to the ground. And the first times they sang this song, to be really honest with you, they probably, it's, it's likely that they stood in the center of Jerusalem and looked around and not just remembered it, but saw the broken down wall and saw the broken down temple. So we get to this tension. And the tension is, what do we even make of this promise? And how can we sing the song? And if we're really honest in the church today, we're in the exact same spot. We've got these amazing promises that are ours in Christ. We believe Jesus Christ sits on the throne of heaven. We believe that in Christ, every single thing is working together for our good. We believe that nothing comes to you except through Christ. And then in the exact other hand, you have your present circumstances. You have your reality. I'll I'll give you an example. Um, you know, sometimes the wrongs that we experience are uh, from man, you know, they're uh, human, sometimes they're personal, sometimes they're institutional. Previous career, I, um, for those of you who are in corporate America, I, uh, I don't take this as, just take, the, uh, tr- take this good. <laughs> uh, I had a series of like really great performance appraisals. That's why my career went pretty well early on. And then uh, we got a new, a new president, and um, you all know one of these seasons, but 49% of our company got laid off in a day. My boss lost his job. All, our, all my team lost their job, but I got promoted in the midst of it. I mean, it was just one of those things, you know? And then six months later, six months into the role, uh, put into stretch assignment, I got the worst performance appraisal I'd ever gotten. I mean, not even like, not like, close, but below, I mean, very different than every, everyone I'd ever had before. And what had happened is basically anybody who was a remnant of the original company just really got dinged hard that year. So it wasn't connected to my immediate performance. Although, I mean, at least I'd like to believe it wasn't, it probably was, but, um, you know, some, I, I had, I had, uh, 
I had said some things to the board and took in a stand for the business. And so my point in that is just to say, sometimes things happen that are institutional, right? Sometimes things happen that are just, they're bigger than you. They're out of your control. Sometimes things happen that are personal. Sometimes it's a neighbor and they just don't like where you put your trash cans or they don't like where you build your fence or they don't like where you, uh, you know, pick it. Uh, sometimes it's a spouse. They don't like the way you put your dishes away or they don't like the shows that you watch or Jen loves where I put the dishes away, by the way, um, because I've learned to put them away where Jen likes to put them away. <laughs> I'm joking. Um, and then sometimes it's a boss or sometimes it's, uh, it's a friend who betrays you. The point is, is that we experience wrong at the world institutional level, but also at the personal level. And it comes really close to home, right? See, wrong is alive and well in our world. The other place that we experience it is just honestly through the consequences of sin and the brokenness of our world. We, we experience death. I've shared this with you guys multiple times, but um, Jen and I have lost two babies through our um, time as parents. And we, we've been in and out of some form of uh, infertility for the better part of a decade. And what you learn going through that is the world is not designed to work that way. We weren't made to experience that kind of loss or difficulty. And so the only thing that I want to do this morning with this first point is simply to demonstrate to you that you are living in the exact same tension that originated this psalm. You have these incredible promises that are yours in Christ, and you have some very difficult circumstances that you live through day to day, week to week, month to month. And so as we transition to the next point, I, a couple of things I just want to clarify. This morning, I'm not going to talk with you about why these things happen. There actually, we can talk about that, but that's not this morning. I'm also not going to talk to you about how to respond to them in the world. Like, what is your moral, social obligation when it happens? We can talk about that, but that's not this morning. The thing I want to focus on this morning is how do you walk with Jesus when wrong is going on in your own life? How do you walk with Christ when you're experiencing wrong? And so second point is uh, the only way we walk with Christ is Christ gives us the resources to do it. And you'll see in this text, he gives us two promises. And the first promise you'll see in verse three, it's the center of the, the psalm. It says that the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous. What that means is that the scepter of wickedness was just basically uh, what it sounds like, the, like the power and authority of wicked people. Or, and that's a big loaded word that we use today. It's just people who do wrong when authority is doing wrong things. And then uh, lot is, it, it's, um, sometimes we tend to think about it as like property lot, you know, like, like my, my house. But, but lot was a dice you used to roll. And it was the way that you made decisions. It was how people got, uh, property got disseminated and positions got established. And what it's saying here is the people who make the decisions about who gets what, what's fair, what's disseminated, bad, wrongdoing people will not do that forever, okay? Evil, the promise that you have is that evil will come to an end. But what I want you to hear this morning 
is that evil only ultimately comes to an end when Jesus Christ returns. You hear me on that? Listen to how uh, Revelation 19 describes the return of Jesus. If you flip over to Revelation 19, go to verse 11. It says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many crowns. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he's called is the Word of God. Now hear this. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. See, for you to live in the midst of wrong, the first thing you need is certainty that wrong is going to end. When people come to Christ, you hear story after story of this, when people come to Christ from just horrible, um, suffering, persecuted situations, it's almost always the justice of God that gets them. It's the idea that we have to know in our hearts that there will be an end to the evil and the wrong that we've experienced. And so the first thing I want you to see this morning is that Jesus is going to smash evil. And your desire to see wrong end weds you to Jesus. Your desire to see wrong end drives you to Jesus. A couple of other things that I want you to notice that are a little bit in this text, but just from the faith in general, you know, your faith has two anchors. The first anchor is that your redemption is already accomplished. It's already historical fact. It is in the past and you can't do anything about it. It is finished. The other thing is that your future is absolutely certain. Like not just that it's gonna happen, but how it's gonna happen. Jesus Christ is gonna return in a body, destroy evil, raise the church from the dead and give them new bodies. That's clear as day. And that is a certainty. And so the ambiguity that we live with is in the middle. There's no ambiguity in the past and there's no ambiguity in the future. So one of the things that's sweet about that is that, uh, and I don't honestly know what to make of, but I just wanna say it to you this morning. Sometimes the maturity of our faith in Christ, God wants us to set our hopes out on the horizon. You were made to live in the present, but sometimes the resources for surviving the present are out in the future. They just are. They just are. And you know what? God intends it that way. He wants to fix your eyes and your heart on the return of Jesus Christ. But then that leaves us with a second thing that our heart needs. Uh, It's good and all to know that Jesus is coming back, but you're still stuck here. I don't know about you, but if I, uh, some of the people who know me really well know I might be like um, unique in this, but if I go through sustained ambiguity, I mean, just like long, periods of ambiguity and difficulty, I can just get frustrated. And frustrated turns into despair 
and despair turns into anger. I mean, it's just that this cycle, if you live with wrong, that's not eventually addressed. And, but then one of the sweet resources for that is you need comfort. If you're going to persist in the midst of wrongdoing, you need to be comforted. And that's exactly the promise that's given to us in Psalm 125. If you uh, turn to verse 2, it's so sweet what it says. Uh, it says, as the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people. You know, um, I was telling some people this this morning, in the, and, I'm a, and this can sound a little bit like a dork, but in the Hebrew, it, that, that word as actually isn't there. The, the simile's not there. The way the Hebrew says it is fact. It says mountains surround Jerusalem, fact. And the Lord surrounds his people. See, if you were uh, in ancient Israel, and the geography hasn't changed today, if you're going up into Jerusalem, into Israel, a couple things are true. You always go up. Doesn't matter where you come from. You're always going up. And the second thing is, no matter where you're coming from, you have to pass through other mountains to get to Jerusalem. It's in the dead center of a mountain range. You cannot get to Jerusalem without going through other mountains. The third thing to know about it, it would make sense that Jerusalem is on the highest uh, uh, peak in this mountain range, but it's not. The mountains surrounding Jerusalem, several of those peaks are higher than even Jerusalem is. And so what I want you to see in the promise this morning is that there is absolutely nothing, nothing, no job, no relationship, no circumstance, no loss, no success, no triumph. No, there's nothing that can get to you without first going through Jesus Christ. You cannot get to Jerusalem without going through the mountains and you cannot get to God's people without going through him. The other thing I want you to see is that it doesn't matter how big your circumstance is. God is bigger than your circumstance. The mountains surrounding Jerusalem are higher than Jerusalem is. He's not off his throne. Hear me? He's not off his throne. And the third thing I want you to know is he is so intimately engaged with what's going on with you. Jerusalem, it's, it's not just like um, the mountains were out in Iraq and Syria, and then you went through these plains and got there. Jerusalem was nestled in the middle of the mountains. It was like in the middle of these ravines. And the promise that it's making here in verse two is that you are in the very midst of Christ. And the two promises we have for that are at the end of Matthew, when Jesus is leaving and he's given some final uh, you know, commands and words to the, apostle, the disciples who are now apostles. What does he say? Y'all who know the King James, and he says, and lo, which means in behold or listen, I'm with you always. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And then the other thing that it says is that after Jesus goes back up to heaven, what does he say? He said, it's profitable. It's good for you that I'll leave because when I leave, I'll send the helper and he will be with you and he will dwell among you and he will teach you and remind you of all the things that I have said. You are not abandoned in the midst of your wrong and the reason is because the Holy Spirit dwells in you, 
among you, surround you. You are in the presence of Christ. And so what I want you to see this morning is that as you live in the midst of wrong, the two things that your heart so deeply, deeply, deeply needs are to know that uh, wrong is going to end and to have comfort in the midst of it. And both of those things are yours in Jesus. Both of those things are designed to wed you to Jesus. You were wed to Jesus in the past by his life and death and resurrection and ascension. You're wed to Jesus in the future by the guarantee of his return. And you are wed to Jesus in the present by your desire for comfort and your need to know it's going to end. So it leaves us with an obvious question. What what are we supposed to do with all of this? It's a big word uh, is indicatives. Those are a bunch of truths I just gave you. But how does it affect our lives? How, How should we live knowing that that's true? And I want to give you four things that come directly out of the text. The first one uh, should be the most obvious. It's the first word in the psalm. It says trust. And it's a, for, for uh, your grammarians in the room, it's a participle. That means it's a verb that's turned into a definition of a person. It says, uh, we are the people who are defined by trust. But it leaves you with a question, trust in what? Uh, We're not fatalists. You know, everything happens for a reason. That might be true. We're also not deists. You know, the man upstairs has a plan. We are Christians. Psalm 1 says that those who trust in the Lord, in Yahweh, who has come to be revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. Our trust is in a person. And people have character. People have natures. People have will. People have intent. And the nature, character, intent of God has been revealed towards you in Jesus Christ. And this is what it is. He is working to accomplish your redemption. And so our trust is in a person. And the terms of that trust are relational. And so that leads us to our second point. What does trust look like? I'm just going to give you some honest, uh, honest talk this morning. The first thing that trust means is to yearn. Y'all know what I mean by yearn? It's to long, like to long deeply. And the text gives you two specific things that you should long for. You, in verse four, you should long for good to be done to the good. Hear that? You should long for justice, for good to be done to the good and for those who are upright in heart to have well done to them. It is not profitable for you to ignore that. It's not profitable for you to say, Kevin, that's ideal. That's, you know, or that it's not pragmatic. You were designed to want good to be done to the good. And the second thing that you should want is for evil to be smashed. You should hate evil. And when something wrong happens, you should hate that it has happened. It does not do you any good to ignore those feelings. It does not do you any good to say, I don't deserve good. Or it doesn't do you any good to say, oh, well, that bad, that's just how the world works. You should love good and hate evil. 
You hear me? When you are going through wrong, you should allow it to cultivate in you a deep desire for good and an absolute aberration, a hatred for evil. But that leads us to point three. What do we do with that? That's going to jam us up. We're going to have a tension. If good continues to grow in our desire and hatred of evil continues to grow in our desire, the longer you live in this world, the the the, 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 the tighter, stronger you're going to feel that tension. And so the text is really, really clear about what you do about that. Verse four, you know when it says, uh, 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 so it's really interesting. The, the first three verses, they're all facts. They're called indicatives, but verse four is a petition. They've made it away from facts to prayer, right? You can see where I'm going. You pray but I want to set that in contrast to what your other option is. Your other option is to do injustice yourself, right? Like wrongs done to you. Your other option is to retaliate. You can defend yourself. You're sued, you can counter sue. You're attacked, you can counter attack. You're somebody uh, accuses you, you can accuse them back. Somebody says something mean to you, you can say it back to them. And just like we said in the beginning, two wrongs don't make a right, they make a mess right? But here's the deal. When you long for good and you hate evil, you should go to Jesus Christ, who right now is waiting to return and is sitting on the throne of heaven and plead with him for good to be done to the good. And then you should Go to Jesus Christ who is sitting on the throne of heaven waiting to return and say that you hate evil and long to see evil smashed. And then you know the third thing you should do? You should plead with Jesus to return because none of this is gonna happen until Jesus Christ comes back. You might see glimpses of it. You'll start to see the already start to break out, but but the not yet is not gonna be yet until Jesus comes back. You hear me? Your hatred of evil and your deep desire for good should create in you such an anticipation and groaning and longing for Jesus to come back, right? So your past wedge you to Jesus, your future wedge you to Jesus, your present wedge you to Jesus. And the thing that it does is long for the presence of Jesus. And then the final thing, what should we do? Once we pleaded with Christ, you wait for him. You wait for him. Uh, it, I'm, I'm so grateful that the psalm doesn't just end with a bunch of uh, imperatives, like a bunch of here's what you should go do, but it actually ends with peace. You notice that? It starts with this promise that Mount Zion will never be shaken. And then it runs through, oh man, bad is happening. And it runs through the love of good and the hatred of evil. But you know where it ends? It says peace upon Israel. Israel in in the Old Testament is another way of saying the church today. Peace is coming to the church. And it's because peace is Jesus Christ. And Jesus is returning. See, it says that when Jesus comes back, he will take evil away. He'll take all those who are crooked And all those who have created every manner and form of evil, 
and lead them away. You know who will be left? You know what will be left? Those who trusted in him. And it'll be peace. So what I want you to see this morning is that all of the wrong, not only can you walk with Christ in it, but it's intended to wed you to Jesus. All the promises and the resources for living through wrong are only yours in Jesus. And so when it comes to wrong, what I want you to do is trust in Christ and not yourself. I want you to trust in Christ and not the people around you. What I want you to do is love good and hate evil. Plead with Christ and long for his return. Listen, church, this is not just a a, a parable. This is not just an illustration. Your redeemer is coming in history. And the scriptures say that he is coming riding on a white horse. And when he comes, the armies of heaven themselves are coming in his wake. And when he arrives, he will execute the judgment of God. And what that means is he will rescue his bride. Jesus Christ is the king of heaven and the king of earth. And you talked about it last week. You are his bride. And he is returning for his bride. And when he does, he will smash evil. Church, you will not be shaken because Jesus is returning. And Christian, you will remain forever because Jesus Christ is returning. So wait for him. Wait for him. Wait for Jesus. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, we acknowledge that we are a people who have participated in evil, who have participated in the fall, our first parents, listen to the liar and cast us into this mess. And then with them, we participated. But Lord, we also acknowledge that you have created faith in your people, that Jesus, you accomplished redemption and that Holy Spirit, you have called your church into existence out of nothing. That you've taken where death was, the death of doubt and independence and have created faith that rests in Jesus finished work and rest in the realization of his coming. And so Lord, as we dwell in the midst of the already not yet, as we live as a people who deal with wrong, as we live as people who are the inheritors of great and precious promises and yet face suffering and hardship, we pray you'd make us a people that plead with you, that love good and hate evil and deeply, deeply, deeply desire your return. And Jesus, we we pray this morning that you will come back quickly. We anticipate your return and we look forward to it. And we pray all this in your name. Amen.